0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a courageous and compassionate life. I've been really fortunate on the podcast lately in the last few months to speak to people whom I really regard as heroes, certainly heroes of mine, but I think when generations in the future look back, on our time, they will identify these people as incredibly courageous, wise, and generous souls who have really blessed us with their presence and their effort over over years and decades. And today's guest is very much in that line. His name is Dr. Peter Bregan, and he has been known for the last 40 years or so as the conscience of psychiatry. He got that title since his crusade, starting really in the late 60s, early 70s, to abolish lobotomization and ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. And since then, he has become an outspoken critic of the entire psychiatric profession, largely based on their reliance on neurotoxic drugs, on unproven surgeries, and their common abuse of power through involuntary incarceration and treatment. So if you're triggered by what I've said so far and you're kind of sputtering in anger and argument, I urge you to give Dr. Bregan a listen, because that was exactly my response when I first came across him and his work. And I've got to say, I was quickly convinced not just by his kind, wise demeanor, but by the evidence that he pointed me towards. So... I want you to know I was right there with you, if that's your reaction, and there's a lot of really surprising, shocking things to discover, and I urge you to keep an open mind. So I heard Dr. Bregan give two talks at last year's Wellness Forum Health Conference. It was in November in Columbus, Ohio. The first talk was on the history of psychiatric abuse of patients, and the other on, I guess, what you'd call the heart of healing from negative emotions and trauma, as Dr. Bergen refuses to use the term mental illness because he believes it doesn't really exist. And with 25% of the U.S. population taking a psych med today and the known damage that these substances do over time, my fervent wish is that everyone could spend a day in the presence of this modern-day prophet of compassion, love, and humanism, which explains the timing of this interview This episode really is a pretty shameless plug for you attending the conference. It's in Columbus, Ohio on November 10th through 12th, 2017. You can find out more at wellnessforumhealth.com. I'm going. It's my third year in a row. I would love to see you there. And especially if you're interested in evidence-based health and you want to inoculate yourself against false claims and fake news and Self serving industrial medicine, I can't recommend this conference highly enough. So, joining me as co host for today's episode is my 17 year old son, Elon, who has been fascinated and inspired by Dr. Bregan's work since he discovered it earlier this year. And many of my son's friends have been treated with psych meds from ADHD meds to antidepressants to anti anxiety, antipsychotics. And Elon has witnessed their destabilizing and really often dehumanizing effects on people he cares deeply about. And so he really wanted to get in on this conversation. And I think he adds a lot. So um, as an aside, if you want to encourage him to do more exploration and more podcasting and more broadcasting, um, please leave a note in the comments section. And that uh, I think will encourage him more than anything I could say. And one more quick thing before we get to the conversation itself Afterwards, I'm going to come and talk to you for a couple of minutes about supporting the show on Patreon, becoming a patron. And this conversation, and the one I'm going to have also at the end of this week with Dr. Pam Popper, who's the director of Wellness Forum Health, um, these are both highly controversial figures, and they really can't get their message out into the mainstream. And so if you value the kind of independence that allows me to bring people like Dr. Bregan, like Pam Popper, like all of the plant based doctors who can't get their day in the court of public opinion, but can speak freely here, then I want to encourage you to stay on till the end and discover how you can become a supporter of this kind of independent media. Okay, thanks. So without further ado, Dr. Peter Bregan, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast.
1: Oh, I'm really glad to be with you, Howard, and I I look forward to our actually doing things together as I get more involved in the nutritional issues, which I think you and Pam Popper and some other people have really nailed down for the first time.
0: Well, yeah, there's uh, there's there's so many moving parts to a human being, and you know, one of the things I've learned from your work is the utter complexity of our inner lives, our emotional lives, and. Um, so you know, the more hol- the more holistically we can all come together um, in empathy and evidence, the better the world will be.
1: Hundred percent with you on that.
0: So I wanted to begin by by asking you a question that you you already told me you could just talk for the next hour and a half on without any help from me. But I do I do want to bring you in on this issue because just just to to help listeners who may not be familiar with your work and who may be um, drinking the mainstream Kool-Aid around psychiatry and psychiatric meds. So on your podcast, there's a a voiceover that begins by introducing you as the conscience of psychiatry. And I would love for you to kind of um, help us understand why the psychiatric profession needs to have a conscience. What's it doing that's unconscionable?
1: Well, I got that, uh, that wonderful designation from Bert Karen, who is uh, now Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Michigan State University. And uh, Bert gave me that uh, designation um, way back in the early 70s when he heard me uh, give a talk at the American Psychiatric Association on um, stopping lobotomy, so I had begun in 1971 and two to conduct an international campaign to stop the return of lobotomy, which is, and other forms of psychosurgery, which is mutilating the brain for psychiatric purposes, and um, people were doing it with the old surgical method of slicing the frontal lobes. They were doing it with new methods by planting radium seeds to kill portions of the frontal lobe, by uh, injecting um, electrodes down into the brain and then heating up the electrodes to make walnut-sized lesions. (laughs) It's just melting in the brain uh, in order to control behavior. And I was just appalled that this was coming back. At the time, I was actually writing novels and conducting a private practice um, <clears throat> because I knew that psychiatry had gone in directions I didn't like, but I didn't think I would try to take on the whole field. I I was writing novels. It got too published. Both of them dealt with psychiatry. But when I saw this coming back, I, I just uh, couldn't bear it. And what I didn't realize was that psychiatry, the American Medical Association, American Psychiatric Association, most of the press... Um, just about any organization you could look at or institution was going to fight this one lone young psychiatrist three or four years out of my training, just finished with a two-year stint at the National Institute of Mental Health, that they were going to bring the full weight down on me for daring to say that a psychiatric treatment was unscientific, unethical, and horrendously damaging to the human being and the expression of the human psyche. Um, and in this process, I found that psychiatry had no conscience. So I was very pleased to be making the conscience of psychiatry. And by no conscience, I mean that the profession, for it's, since its inception, which was in the state mental hospitals during the Industrial Revolution, when the cities were overwhelmed with p- poor people and street people and people coming in from the farms as they were taken over by uh, larger aggregates of uh, of power and money. And um, We developed these poor houses to lock them up in, and the poor houses also became mad houses and were somewhat indistinguishable and sometimes the exact same thing. And then uh, eventually psychiatrists got put in charge of them so that they would look more sanitary, and they called them um, uh, uh, general hospitals, but they were for the psychiatric patients throughout the Western world, starting in France. And in these hospitals, patients were locked up against their will under civil commitment rather than criminal Charges because there weren't any criminal charges to bring against them, and they were too. They were even in France they were protected uh, in the eighteen hundreds by enough laws to, to to prevent their being locked up. So they made up civil commitment. This is for your own good, and you're a danger uh, to yourself, to other people, um, without having to prove any of it. And we got these giant lockups throughout the Western world. And then uh, within these lockups, uh, psychiatrists began to torture their patients to control them because they were out of control. Psychiatrists didn't know about love, empathy, caring, improving the environment, changing the architecture, you know, developing uh, work programs and uh, rehabilitation programs and so on. What psychiatrists knew were using medicines and using surgeries. So they went to work. Uh, During the 1930s, which is really the only revolution in psychiatry that ever occurred, they discovered that destroying brain tissue rather than just giving toxins to people was the effective way to control people. So where previously they'd been beating people or putting people in cold water or bleeding people or giving them doses of arsenic or whatever other poison was around at the time, purging them, you know... uh, giving them nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, all these things which, you know, made people docile in the state hospitals that psychiatry was doing. In the name of treatment, because we're physicians, um, they just didn't work very well. People still rebelled. Then they found out that if you overdose somebody with insulin and kill brain cells in the process, put them in a severe coma, they come out really cooperative for a while. And if you do electroshock treatment and destroy brain cells, that was the next one, that that did it, too. And at the same time, in uh, thir- 1938, they, they came up with lobotomy, which is just going in and destroying brain tissue. And Igaz Muniz from Portugal, uh, who was a neurologist in Portugal, he got the Nobel Prize for lobotomy, and it's just bizarre. Um, and then it came to the U.S. Walter Freeman did 5,000 lobotomies. He had a traveling show. He'd go around to the state mental hospitals and he'd uh, bring in patients he'd never met or talked to uh, and and uh, and stick a, an ice pick, sometimes in both eyes at once, around the eyeball, into the frontal lobes, swish it around. And lobotomize the person with unsterile equipment in front of an amphitheater of approving uh, physicians, and show off by doing each eye one, uh, doing both uh, both hands uh, around each eyeball at one time. And um, and he knew he was destroying people. He wrote about it openly in his textbook. Uh, you know they can't think well. They don't have as much imagination. They're more primitive. Uh, they're more concrete. Their judgment, judgments impaired, but. They're more manageable. And nobody protested. A few people complained within the profession, but nobody stood up and said, this is immoral and it has to stop. And then I did. And I didn't just say it to the profession, I said it to the world. And I eventually did stop. the, re- So there's very sporadically used now. I stopped it through, I went to Europe, I stopped it throughout Europe, North America, you know, US and Canada, and even some projects overseas and uh, in the Far East, I stopped because I just told the truth about what I was doing. And at that moment, it's, it more and more struck me that I could not rely on psychiatry or medicine, as it was often involved in these issues the neurology profession, the support of the AMA, and so on. Um, I realized that the Psychiatric kinds of treatments and probably uh, the whole host that you're dealing with now in the nutritional area and that I'm beginning to deal with, they don't change. They don't have a conscience. They are self-maintaining, self-aggrandizing institutions that want money, they want power, they want influence, they want to be adored, respected, all of which psychiatry strives to do and medicine strives to do. So just one, one thought, just to tie it into all the rest. I couldn't, in the beginning, understand why I would get so attacked over lobotomy. And then it began to dawn on me that all psychiatric treatments, drugs, electroshocks, psychosurgery, no matter what it is, if it's being done by psychiatrists, the medical docs, basically create lobotomy Or lobotomy like effects. So that every treatment we use destroys or harms brain tissue sufficiently to make us less arts. So that we, uh, in the long run, whatever it does in the first two weeks, in the long run, meaning three weeks or four weeks, whatever, sometimes the first dose, just subdues us as humans. And that began this work that I do now in it on, you know, in now I've been joined by so many other great people. But at that point, I, I was alone and scared. And, <laughs> and Bert Caron, who, who gave me that designation, um, was one of my very first supporters when I came under attack.
0: 30 yeah. years
1: ago, what is it now? It's 30, 45 years ago?
0: Yeah, 1972
1: long time. is what, 28 and 17. 20 yeah, years.
0: 40, 45 years. So, so I'm curious about... You know your your biography that got you to that point because presumably you went into psychiatry not because you thought it was an inhumane evil endeavor. Um, most psychiatrists that I know, I you know I, I don't think of as as sort of bloodthirsty, um, masochistic, or sadistic villains. Um, but what what did you experience and see that made you diverge? So completely from your colleagues.
1: Well, first, let me start with this interesting thing you said, which most of the psychiatrists you meet are not narcissistic, sadistic villains. I do believe that if you met any large group of people who were murdering other people, you you would not find them to look on the surface as uh, very different from other humans. I don't think if you were to go to Nazi Germany, which we'll get into discussing, it's not a mere mere metaphor, um, you would find lots of very nice people. I don't think that uh, Adolf Eichmann, uh, who was so important in the organization of the Holocaust, came across as a sadistic, mean villain. In fact, he talked about how much uh, he respected Jewish tradition at his trial, I do believe. Um, so the, the the point isn't people who are aberrations from humanity, human beings have since time began abused anybody that they have power on a large scale. Men have abused women. Women and men have abused children. Older children have abused younger children. Um Anywhere, uh, tribes have destroyed other tribes, going back as far as we can track. Um, People have had wars over all kinds of, of issues, and all of this continues today, and it is a part of human nature, and social organization doesn't help it a lot of the time. So... My view is that psychiatry, not not psychiatry in terms of psychology and psychotherapy, which has never been a big part of psychiatry, but psychiatry is one of those opportunities, and there aren't many of them, in the Western world where you can wear a suit and control other human beings, drug them, shock them, diagnose them, put them in mental hospitals. So people who want to do that are drawn into that. And practically every psychiatrist, maybe exceptions would be one in a thousand, goes through the process. Maybe everyone really goes through the process of giving shock treatment during the residency, knocking down people with the huge doses of drugs in the emergency room, um, they, they read about psychosurgery along the way and don't rebel. And in that process, if they rebel in any way at all, they get fired out of their residencies. Because I knew some people who were in that situation when we first started really looking at what we were doing. And people who knew Thomas Zoss, who was one of the very first people to, from the, within the profession to criticize it you know, everybody who, who they could fire would be fired along the way for standing up on these issues. So you have a closed system with huge power over over other human beings, which allows the satisfaction that you, many men and, and a significant portion of women get from controlling and subduing other people. So, uh, They don't have to be sadists. They just have to be a large part of the human population that does these things. Um, I mean, where else can you do that? Uh, uh, You're going to be more heavily supervised in the CIA for, say, trying to waterboard somebody than you would uh, in an ordinary psychiatric practice for damaging their brains with electroshock treatment. To accomplish somewhat the same effect, which is make the person docile and hostile, and co- docile and and cooperative. Hmm. So um, I've never made that comparison before, about the CIA in terms of the 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 fact that um, that what they're allowed to do under the law. Although I'm I'm sure they exceeded at times, as all institutions do. But under the law, they can't even waterboard now. I don't think, and yet psychiatrists do things that make waterboarding look uh, minor. You know, they 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 harm people's brains permanently on a regular basis with drugs and and electroshock, and they still have no policies within psychiatry against lobotomy.
0: Um, so, 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 what happened to you? You didn't get fired. Um you came you went into psychiatry?
1: Well no, no um, let me I have to take you back a little bit. I got involved in psychiatry when I was eighteen years old and a freshman at Harvard College. And a friend asked me to come volunteer um at the State Mental Hospital. He said, Look at you, you're studying all the times I was in a special honors program of American history and literature and thought I'd go on and be a professor in the field or maybe become a lawyer. <laughs> Not a medical doctor. And um, maybe a psychologist, but I wasn't uh, majoring in psychology. And I uh, went out to this hospital, and the first thing that struck me was how similar it looked, the State mental Hospital, to my Uncle Dutch's liberation of an extermination camp in Nazi Germany during World War II. The patients were horribly kept. They looked malnourished, as they to them. They looked beaten down and, and harmed, as they were all. Um, the in the people who took charge of them were extremely callous. Um, and what I didn't know, but would learn later, is their, the death rates were extremely high as well, uh, completing sort of a comparison to the, uh, to the extermination camp. Um, and what I found when I walked in and spent about the first 10 or 15 minutes, that as a as a pleasant looking college volunteer people in the violent wards would come up to me and just beg for a little attention and a little conversation and I found that none of these violent people looked violent toward me at least and the most of the violence I saw was in the eyes of the uh, very untrained and poorly paid aides Um, and we found out how violent they were over the years of running as I ended up running the program. So I realized from the beginning that these were human beings. And when I saw a Radcliffe student I'll never forget that from our sister college, now they can go to Harvard too, which is a, a great thing. Um, and uh, I saw, uh, you know, a Radcliffe student, as I was told, lying on the floor. Doing motionless and ignored, and I thought to myself, "My God, this is really stressful. My first year at Harvard. I mean, what stands between me and that person?" I thought, "Nothing, nothing." Just, you know, at that point, I'd given up believing in God, which I did throughout my childhood. And then, uh, but now that I've come back to it, I'd say, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." And so when, they, when I heard they were being raped and beaten, when I saw that um, the effects of shock treatment, which I did, an insulin coma treatment, because I, I ran the program, I actually got keys to the hospital. I could go anywhere. Um, I realized that what was happening, these human beings had to make them worse. And yet every time I sat down with one of them, unless they weren't completely demented by their treatment, mostly sometimes by disease, they related to me. So I talked to the superintendent much against his will. I threatened to take the program elsewhere. We had, a, we had already, you know, got the best publicity in the world for him. There's a picture of me in the Saturday Evening Post in the 50s working and talking with the patients on the wards. Um, I mean, this was, we, got, we even got then some good coverage within psychiatry because psychiatry then had a social wing. The psychosocial wing, it doesn't have it anymore. It's zero now. But then you could take a residency in community psychiatry working with folks. No more. So uh, I developed the program, and he finally acquiesced to it, where 12 of us would get our own patients to work with regularly on a schedule every week throughout the school year. And they tried to make sure these patients were, you know, so difficult that, uh, that, you know, we wouldn't hurt them The president of the uh, Psychoanalytic Association. I never saw any psychoanalysts on the wars. The president said we'd ruin the patients. Turf wars. I began to see all this. I'm 18 years old. I'm 19, 20, you know, before I I go on. And uh, the program succeeded. We got almost every patient out of the hospital, much to the shock of everybody. (laughs) And it was written up. It was written up as a big deal in the last psychosocial document to come out of the federal government, the 1968 uh, report on um, mental illness and mental health from uh, the National Institutes of mental Health, big book. And we were in there. Um, and that's before psychiatry became a total partner with the drug companies and excluded everything else. So I went to medical school knowing. That psychiatric treatments were doing more harm than good. I've been reading, reading, studying on my own. Um, I graduated with a degree in social relations and my premedical studies, and um, and but mostly I read on my own stuff that didn't wasn't assigned. And I knew that people responded incredibly to a caring relationship. And I had an idea for a book, and uh, we got a publisher. Uh, the, it was published two or three years after I was gone. I'm one of the co-authors, but it was my idea. And in my drafts, it was taken out by the supervising psychiatrist. In my drafts, I talked about love. I said, these people need love. They need caring. They need affection. They respond to caring relationships. Well, that was a little too much for him. But um, I knew that from the beginning. Now, why did I know that? It wasn't because I was brought up to understand it. I can tell you that. It was almost the fact that I was brought up without all those things I saw people needed that made me feel there before the grace of God go on. And uh, the people need caring, loving relationships to empower them. And later I would realize that there was wisdom that could be conveyed and the importance of the therapeutic um, separation and objectivity, not, not objectivity, um, the boundaries. Objectivity is a ridiculous word if you're dealing with people. Uh, it's just a killer. Um, but a caring relationship protected by boundaries. So I got started that way. And When I got to medical school, everything I saw, I realized, was uh, fake science. It wasn't hard at all. Discovered all you had to do was uh, look at the papers cited in the psychiatric textbook, and often they didn't say anything like that. that was being cited, <laughs> the that being said, it said
0: so. Let, let me um, sort of get into the minds of some, of some listeners who might be with you about lobotomy and electroshock and insulin comas and gouging people's brains out through their eyeballs and their. Of the impression that, you know, since the 1980s, since Prozac and the the SSRIs and the latest drugs, that psychiatry has become, you know, at least benign and possibly helpful. And they have they know people or maybe they themselves are on these drugs and they're saying, well, you know, I didn't kill myself. I didn't become violent. I, I got out of the pit of despair. I'm functioning. Your, your take and the evidence that you and folks like Bob Whitaker of Mad in America and his books have, uh, have really pointed out that this is a giant illusion. Can you help pop that illusion for, for listeners?
1: Yeah, there's many different approaches to that. Um, the first thing maybe would be to use some simple analogies to more familiar things. We know that all the various psychoactive substances that people use really aren't good for them. We know that smoking to calm your nerves has not worked out well. We know that drinking to control your anxiety or your rage or whatever else doesn't work out well. We know that taking LSD hasn't worked out well. We probably don't fully realize how much small marijuana really doesn't work out well. Um, Any psychoactive substance is a neurotoxin. They all work by impairing the function of the brain. And if you read a a book that's got in the title Neurotoxicity or Neurotoxins, it's going to have psychiatric drugs in there. Because many of them are classic neurotoxins that have been studied for years, like lithium. And you'll see under the neurotoxicity the various adverse effects of the SSRIs, as neurotoxic effects, serotonin syndrome, or neuroleptic malignant syndrome from the antipsychotic drugs, and, and so on. Um, the neurotoxins. So, what are the odds that neurotoxins are really going to be helpful in the long run? They may. Give you an artificial high in the beginning. People sniff glue, another neurotoxin to get an artificial high. Uh, <clears throat> to not, nitrous oxide to impair brain function, so they get a high. Um, but they don't work in the long run, and they're not dealing with the person's problems and the terrible ways of avoiding coming to grips with yourself. And they harm the brain. It just isn't good to disrupt the brain's function. So how in the world? do the drug companies get away with this? I didn't know much about that, how in the world they got away with it. I could see how damaging the drugs were just from seeing people on them and talking to them in a caring way and seeing the limits of their responsiveness on the drug and how much better they were off the drugs. But then in 1993, I was made the psychiatric scientist for all the combined Prozac suits. By 1994, there were nearly 200 suits against Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of Prozac, for for causing uh, violence, suicide, mayhem, and things like that. Horrible behavioral reactions. So I, for the first time, really studied how things work. By the way, I was appointed by a consortium of dozens of attorneys, and then a federal judge put his imprimatur on me to do this. So I began interviewing FDA people about the drug approval process. I uh, went through courses put on by industry to teach um, leaders of drug companies and their minions how to uh, get things through the um, FDA process. I reviewed the scientific literature on Prozac, and um, I um, finally, uh, well, then two further steps, I really went deeply into the FDA approval process and analyzed it, and then I analyzed the scientific literature, and then finally I went inside Eli Lilly. I got cartons of their materials to look at, and then I found these bizarre things going on which made clear that the FDA was simply in collaboration with Eli Lilly to get Prozac passed.
0: Eli Lilly is the manufacturer of Prozac.
1: Prozac. And among other things, the trials were supposed to last six weeks. And you heard me right, folks. It may have taken eight years or whatever to get it approved, but the clinical trials where they studied people in placebo-controlled studies only lasted, were supposed to last six weeks maybe eight, and a lot of them could only last four. Why? Because the drug was so neurotoxic that people were dropping out. They'd get apathetic and indifferent, or they'd get high, or they'd get sexual difficulties based on harm to their central nervous system and their brain. Um, they would feel sick. They just dropped out. Their family would notice that they were uptight, anxious, and nervous, all things caused routinely by the drug. Um, So the FDA let them continue the studies, even though they were falling short of the six weeks, and then even to put in statistical uh, sleights of hand to be able to evaluate patients at six weeks where they were last known only at four weeks. I mean, bizarre things like that. I found out... Um, Other things that no one had ever, ever written anything about, which is that all the patients are first, and this still goes on, all this still goes on, all the patients were first put on placebo, and if you reacted to placebo, you were dropped out. Well, that skews things in favor of the drug company drastically to first give everybody placebos and drop out the people who respond to placebos. And then go do a trial, random trial, where you divide the people up into placebos, which you've mostly gotten rid of those people who are placebo re- responders. And uh, I mean, it was just it's uh, ju- just a mess. So then I found out further that the drug was agitating so many people that the trials were going to fail. So the drug company, without asking the FDA, put all the patients who were getting agitated on addictive sedatives, tranquilizers and sedatives to calm them down as long as they get the drug approved. So then they got to the time when they were going to do the approval process, and um, the FDA looked at it, and they they only had two marginal trials that looked remotely. See, they're allowed to do trials, which makes no sense at all. That's not science. But if you get one or two right, you're okay. So you,
0: you, you, Peter, you blipped out there for a second. You said how many trials are they allowed to do to get there, too? As many as they need. So so that would be like me shooting a, uh, a basketball for midcourt and being filmed, and at the end of the day, two out of 3,000 go in, and those are the ones that I get to put on Facebook?
1: Without telling anybody what happened.
0: Just, just that those were the two.
1: That, no, that's what you do. Yeah, you can shoot the basketball and make baskets. Because no that, one's ever told that other trials failed badly. But Abilify, just reading the Abilify uh, um, information, and uh, and and they had like three. They had more failures than successes. Didn't stop them from getting approved. Mm. Now, so what the FDA did was they gave them forgiveness for the two tri- for the trials. There were two of them in particular, where there were a lot of sedatives and benzos given to the patients to calm them down. They th- yeah. they let the company get approval on marginal trials while the patients were illegally taking benzos to calm them down. Mm. Not just benzos, but sedatives. So I mean the manipulations go on and on. I'll I'll leave you with one last one. Well, the company was getting reports of suicide. So the the Germans asked them. The Germans were getting a lot of suicide reports on their studies. So they asked them. They asked the the, uh, um, Eli Lilly to evaluate its trials for suicide, which they've never done properly. So they evaluated their trials, and they found that a rate of between um, six to 12 to one, they were getting suicide attempts, not ideations, suicide attempts compared to comparing a, the drug to sugar pill and comparing it to an older antidepressant. So there was overwhelming evidence that the drug was causing suicide and it was held, held inside the company. What did the company do with the data? They never gave it to anybody. I was the first one to make it public. I mean, it's bizarre. Now, I'll give you the one last thing. So finally, again, getting a lot of suicides, data coming in, suicide attempts and completed suicides in Europe, two Eli Lilly officials wrote memos to all of the company leadership saying you have sent us orders that when we get a report from our own investigators saying to catalog this event as a drug-related suicide, see, the investigators, the people who do the trials, working for Ellie, Eli Lilly, people who do the trials are drug company people. They may be uh, outside the company, or uh, but they are basically people they know and hire all the time. But these guys are, these people are sending in to some of the Europeans, uh, particularly in Germany, this stuff saying, you know, uh, we're, getting, we're getting suicides. And so Eli Lilly, corporate execs, responded by saying, reclassify reports of suicide as something else, such as no drug effect, such as emotional lability which is one of the mildest things in the whole lexicon dictionary you can use. But don't log them as suicide attempts, suicide's completed. So they wrote this memo back to them saying, how can we justify this? How are we going to explain this to the public if it comes out? How are we going to explain this to a judge? And how am I going to explain it to my family? Memo sent to the top people. Which came out, you know, which I found in in the records, and then they said, "But we will do as instructed." Now, not to get into dizzying heights of conspiracy theory, no one has ever located that man. We have the memos; they're on my uh, website. Go and look up uh, the Eli Lilly documents or put in Eli Lilly memos. You'll, you'll get to this stuff. You'll see the memo, two memos. So what goes on behind the scenes? Now, skipping ahead, they do no studies. Well, they do no studies, neuropsychological neuropsych- studies for brain injury during the time people are taking the drugs. They don't do any. They don't even do detailed clinical evaluations of, whether, of just how harmed the people are. They just use little checklist stuff. And we now know from scientific studies, and I review these. in my, late, my latest book is Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. We didn't mention, I've written more than 20 books and more than, uh, well over, I think now, 50 scientific articles are all on my websites. The scientific articles are for free on my website. And um, we now know that every class of drug, longer term, produces serious and probably irreversible harm to the brain. So yeah, I, I, want, I
0: want to jump in there and introduce a uh, another guest or, or co-host. My son Elon is uh, is sitting next to me here in the studio.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: And he wanted to. He's much more interested in your work than in my work. And you know, he we, he and I have been talking. Um, he rose up out of school, so he works. You know, hangs out with lots of people who are unschoolers or homeschoolers or, or in high school. And he started noticing, Why do what you kind of say
2: what you, yeah. your, your question. Um, so most of my friends are on antidepressants or ADHD medication or both, a lot of them both. Um, and I'm wondering if this is the first generation to grow up on psych meds.
1: Well, it's, it's among the first, it's been a, um, a rising curve. In 1972, um, a congressman held uh, committee meetings criticizing the uh, epidemic of in 1972 of the of uh, drugging our kids with amphetamines and amphetamine-like drugs. And estimates were then of between 100 and 200 thousand. We're now into the multi millions. So it's been a, a rising curve. And a lot of studies show rates as high as 20%, but as you're among our boys in high school, but as you're discovering, it's probably a lot higher than that. Um, we are now approaching the, a very high rate, and it is, the, certainly in the history of the world, the first massive social experiment in drugging our children instead of educating them and raising them. And instead of providing them the services they need, we're drugging them. So what
2: happens to um, these kids who become adults and have been on these drugs for their entire lives? Well, first, have
1: you seen changes in them? I'd be very interested. Do they look as uh, lively as you, as caring as you, as interested as you? Um, The
2: the latest... The last person I talked to about this, um, he took, I guess, antidepressants, not any other drugs, just antidepressants, and uh, the day I talked to him, his dosage was just increased to, I guess, the adult amount, and he, he hasn't been on them that long, but they have already jumped to the full dosage. And he is very, uh, he's not as lively as the last time I've seen him. And he, I guess he was a little bit um, excited to be around people before. And now he, he sort of had his head down the entire time I talked to him. And when he would laugh, it was kind of forced.
1: Yeah. Now you see... <clears throat> He'll be told by the lying doctors that that's his depression. But it's actually a the most common adverse effect of the drugs is to cause apathy, sadness, depression in people. And then they give more and more of the drug saying it's the depression when it's the drug. And people don't know the effects. I've written a paper that you can get on my website on medication spellbinding What it is is something we've always known about uh, drugs like alcohol and um, marijuana that that your judgment's impaired while you're taking it. So if you're you're smoking dope and you think the jokes are really funny around you and you think the cookies are the best ever, you know, if you're not smoking dope, you're not going to think the jokes are funny or profound. Um, It impairs judgment, and alcohol. You person thinks. I mean, it's a national problem. People think they can drive better than ever on alcohol because they're focusing harder or something like that when they're impaired on the alcohol. People don't appreciate the impairments that drugs cause. As far as I'm known, I'm the first person to give it a name. Uh, Medication spellbinding, and and, and when I write papers, I call it intoxication and osagnosia, not knowing you're intoxicated. And um, so you, you, he won't know the cha- what the changes are, are occurring. He might not even notice them or feel them because his judgment's being impaired by harm to his frontal lobes. Now, I hate to talk about somebody I don't know, and let's not allow any information about him, and I don't know precisely what's happening to him. He could have had a hit on the head. But the odds in general are going to be when after you've taken these drugs, you look worse, it's the drugs. Um and we just got to say that. We just can't not say that anymore. Now, long-term, what awaits him is a very high likelihood of permanent impairment of his sexual function and hence his relationships with the opposite sex or whatever sex he's attracted to. And that's now, we got scientific articles on that. I have on my website uh, a resource center called 123 Antidepressants. I don't have one yet on the stimulants, but one, two, three antidepressants. And it's got all the papers in categories to confirm what I'm saying. And then we have lots of studies now about the long-term apathy syndrome. People get more and more apathetic. goes hand-in-hand with losing the sexual interest. And we're also getting evidence for brain injury, biochemical evidence, um, MRI evidence for injury to brain prolonged exposure to these drugs. But worse than that also is they're usually a gateway to multiple other drugs. Now, if you're on the Ritalin, um, it it immediately produces, or stimulants, Adderall, any of the drugs given for ADHD pretty much, um, they are going to produce an immediate apathy syndrome, and we know that from animal research. Mm -hmm. Uh People...
2: Go ahead. So I was completely blown ab- blown away by um, a quote in um, Your Drug May Be Your Problem, mm-hmm. saying that uh, the depression that these kids are feeling is because of severe optimism.
1: I don't even remember that quote. But yes, one of the things I deeply experience is that... Um, People who, who, who get depressed often have very high expectations. And psychiatrists and modern therapists do not approve of high expectations. Um, if you go in and, and say, I want to be the conscience of psychiatry, they'll want to lock you up. Um, they're not going to say, I want you to meet your expectations and even exceed them. They'll say, you have a biochemical imbalance, including the therapist, and that's untrue. The therapists don't know it, but it's untrue. And the psychiatrist will say, you have a biochemical imbalance, which is extremely discouraging. I can't tell you the joy in the faces of children when I tell them there's nothing wrong with their brains. Like, I, I mean, and they immediately get that they've been lied to to sell the drugs. The kids often see that. <clears throat> um So yes, drugs suppress our spontaneity. Any drug, no matter if it's psychoactive. Even cigarettes will do that to you. They suppress your spontaneity. Um, And all psychoactive substances, I believe, in the long run will do that. Um, And um, the person doesn't know what's happening to them. Now, what the therapist should be saying, and I'm really glad to get on this topic, and from you asking those questions, what the therapist should say is, "Listen, let's say it's a kid. Um, I've spent just 10 minutes with you, and um, you're really a nice person. I like you a lot." They perk up immediately, and then I look at their the neuropsychological testing that they have gotten, and I look at it, and I and I say, "Gee, you know what? I, I've read the first paragraph." And there's nothing in here that says anything about how great you are. There's nothing in here that says you've got such a sweet smile as kids have when they're almost all of them when they meet me and I talk to them. And it doesn't say anything about your love of computers. I think down here somewhere it says you spend too much time on computers. Oh, you love computers. Uh, I said, I want you to find your greatness, which is. Um, a line I got from psychologist Howie Glasser. It's the only line I use in there because it's such a true one. I want you to find your greatness. And drugs are not going to do that. And you've got nothing wrong with you. And your parents are here so they're willing to work. And you're going to get through this as you should by your parents making a lot of changes and by you making changes. That's what we need to do. You're a kid. we have got to fix your family. And, and, the, and the children always like this And the kind of parents that come to me usually like this. But, of course, a lot of other parents who put their kids on drugs aren't going to want to hear they've got to do all the work. They want their kids drugged. They want to drop their kids off at the therapist. And they've been sold a bill of goods to make them think that's okay. Well, folks, it's not okay. You've been sold a bunch of malarkey that fits easily with your lifestyle, but it's not okay drop your kid off to a therapist without you being in there and talking and involved and making changes in how you treat your child. And I also tell the kids, and I say this in front of the parents on the first visit, and I say, and if your parents don't change, Tommy or Janie, if your parents don't change, you still got to take responsibility and change this stuff. You got to stop talking crazy and you stop talking. 10 minutes when I told you it was crazy and stopped so I could communicate with you well you've got to do that on your own you've got to find better ways of relating you've got to stop hitting your little sister you've got to get your act together so that you can have a good life even if your parents don't change because ultimately we gotta, we got to be responsible for ourselves but here you are you're young and you shouldn't have to take that burden on yourself so we'll all work together I mean the changes are dramatic often in the first few Sessions. In fact, if, if people don't come back saying this is working, something's a matter.
2: I have another question about how um, you get trust between a client and a therapist.
1: Well, it's not really hard because you're in a very protected relationship where you're not going to be relating outside the relationship, where you're not in a position, you're not allowed to do any harm or stuff. So it's a safe relationship. And I, the person, to treat me in the same way, to do me no harm and to relate to me in a really nice way. So that's what I set up from the beginning. If the person has been exposed to psychiatry, I say at the start, maybe 10 minutes in, I'll say, I want you to know since you've been exposed to psychiatry that I uh, will never increase your drug doses. I only want to decrease them and to help you come off of them. If you end up thinking you absolutely need a small amount and can't get off, that'll be your decision. But I want to help you go drug free. And that means if you tell me you're depressed or you want to hurt yourself or you're suicidal, I'm not going to drug you. So you you can relax about that. It's not going to be you go in and and you're afraid to tell the psychiatrist what's going on because he's going to drug you. And I never lock up anybody. If you want to go to a mental hospital, I'll help you go, warn you about the risks. Sometimes it's the only place. uh, We'll turn it for a short time maybe, but I'm not going to ever lock you up against your will. So you're safe telling me anything you want. The one exception is, is if you give me information, you're going to hurt somebody else under the law. I have to take a lot of action about that. Uh, it wouldn't be to lock you up. I'd I'd warn the person under the law. Uh, but so, I'm here I'm here to empower you. I make it really clear. I'm really here. I want you to reach your greatness. I'm here to empower you and to talk to you. People get pretty quick that this is a different experience than they've had before.
0: So here hearing this and having Uh, read your phenomenally beautiful book, The Heart of Being Helpful. Um, And knowing that you, you one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, aside from just the the honor and delight of talking with you, is the upcoming Wellness Forum Health Conference that you're speaking at uh, several times and co-sponsoring. And the the program that you're um, putting together, basically, I think, to democratize therapy that that my sense of listening to you to just describe to Elon what your approach is, is it doesn't require necessarily a, a, a graduate and a professional degree to be helpful. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, take, taking mental health back to, to the people from these these institutions that have been uh, abusing us with it?
1: Yeah, well, clearly I learned as what we used to call a case aid or a other different names that in the volunteer program, the volunteers. I, I clearly saw that we were doing much more help for the patients than anybody else, and we were doing less harm. And I was a college sophomore at that point and running the program. And um, so I genuinely believe in that. And I believe, and I'm, I'm hoping that Pam Popper, who is running the, uh, really runs it, she's allowing me to co-sponsor, she's kind, the Wellness Forum, which, by the way, you can find on my website. Just look at the coming events. It's the one coming event um, in the near future, and it's, uh, it's in um, Columbus, Ohio, and um, it's November 10th through 12th. This year, and again, um, just, just look up coming events on my website or go to Pam's website. You can find Pam Popper pretty easy. It's her 21st conference. I've done many conferences, and this is uh, one of a number that I've co-sponsored. Um, and Pam and I have uh, just created, it's on her website, it's not on mine yet, a, uh, a course that people can take on why and how to stop taking psychiatric drugs. And you do not have to be a professional to take that. The course is how, why and how. Stop taking psychiatric drugs. So you could be a trainer and you could put up a certificate saying, I've taken the Wellness Forum, a um, very long course with 28 videos of me and books and stuff. It's a serious endeavor. I've taken this and this is my qualification for helping you come off psychiatric drugs. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm going to do this as part of being a trainer. I mean, you can do whatever you want that is legal in your state just to figure out what's legal in your state to do. So this is the beginning of that process for getting the information out to everybody and for people to use it in whatever way is is legal within their state. Then our next program that Pam and I may do might very well be... (coughs) Training people in empathic therapy with no requirements at all how to be an empathic therapist no requirements other than you uh convince us that you're a well intended rational somewhat wise person maybe you've w- raised three kids um, and maybe you're a fifty year old uh, lady and you've got grandchildren and you love kids and you want to work with kids and we believe you and uh will give you this certificate which you can use within whatever the legal limits are that in your state that you've been trained in, in uh, empathic. We're not sure what the word will be yet. Maybe empathic coaching, empathic training, uh, empathic healing, uh, something along those those lines. So, yes, we're trying to do that. I love your phrase. I've never used it, democratize uh, therapy. Um I believe that therapy could be provided at an extremely low cost under this method because the people won't have had very expensive training. They won't have had even to have a GED. I mean, we just don't think that that's what makes you a good therapist. Pam and I think what makes you a good helper or therapist is the kind of person you are. And then getting some good training in therapy and hopefully with good supervision afterward. We haven't put all this together, but good supervision afterward if you want to maybe get the professional degree, or the professional certificate. So we're aiming at trying to do this. And other people have also worked on this for particular therapies. Um, so it's not wholly uncharted um, territory. Did I answer your question?
0: yeah um it's just as as a follow up you know so i have spent i i spent many years as a marketer um learning how to be empathetic with people so I could sell them things um i now try to to uh, you know use it for higher purposes and one of the things I discovered was that empathy real it it wasn't very difficult it, you know it was an easy it was a simple concept, but it wasn't very easy because of all my own inner stuff. And I'm wondering, you know, how, what sort of self-healing do you think we need to do in order to be really helpful for others?
1: Let me address that next. I want to address what you said about you were using it in, uh, for selling things, as if that was a bad thing. I think that depends on, on what you're selling. For example, if you're going to buy a house, you know, we think a lot about houses. Ginger and I were very interested in houses, and you could be taken around by a an ethical um, uh, salesperson, realtor, who would find out by being caring and empathetic what you really want. For example, when um, if I were to buy a home right now, another home, I would want water on the land a pond, a stream, lakefront, because I love that. Now, I would expect the empathic, caring realtor to not show me anything else because they know that that's a lifelong feeling of mine, on water or with water, natural water. (laughs) So if that person's empathic, we're going to work really good. Um, or if my wife says I I want a kitchen that has a lot of light coming in so that I can see that water my husband wants and I can see the trees and the hill that I want, I expect the realtor to limit to those things through really understanding who we are and what we want in the way of a home. Now, many realtors who are successful will do that, but there are other realtors who will say, well, you, you can't get everything, you know. I had a realtor a number of years ago say to me, well, you know, you can't get everything you want. And I said, I don't want to hear that come out of your mouth again. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we stopped working with that person. Um, right. So I, don't,
0: I guess in my, in my mind the distinction is are they using empathy to create, you know, for to use an unfortunate cliche sort of a win-win where, you know, or are they using empathy for their own gain and to manipulate? I guess that's yeah, exactly. that's what I was thinking of.
1: That's right. And as a professional, one of the things that's supposed to distinguish a professional, I do believe, if we looked it up somewhere, we find that professionalism involves a dedication to good service, not to just making money. So if you have a professionalism, that doesn't mean you're a psychiatrist, medical doctor. It means you professional responsibility to however you're helping a person, whether it's dance therapy or aromatherapy. If you bring a professionalism, you really are interested in the service being good. And um, then empathy is an important part of it, and it's used in a good manner.
0: Gotcha. So coming back to uh, to my question about sort of what what kind of work do you think we need to do on ourselves? Do we need to do work on ourselves in order to be empathic and caring for other people? Or, you know, can we, can we quickly cut through that noise and still be helpful even if we're not entirely enlightened ourselves?
1: Well, it doesn't depend so much on the work. You, I don't think of it in terms of the work you do, but I think that's certainly a very good way to look at it. I think of it in the terms of really who you are. I mean, if you are somebody who can sit and listen to another human being suffering and struggling without feeling guilty, without feeling anxious, without feeling ashamed if you can't help them, without feeling angry and without going numb, all the things I describe in my book, Guilt, Shame and Anxiety, if you can sit there without having those reactions overcome you, um, and if you have high standards of ethical behavior and a moderate understanding of how childhood affects us, if you have all those things, you've done the work already. On the other hand, if you're like most of us who are going into doing this work, um, we probably don't have all that under control, and we should be getting some help to help us become that person, and there's many avenues to helping you. Um... You know, that's the kind of way I'd evaluate it. And and because all of us are human beings and so flawed, I I think that probably anybody who wants to do that kind of work should have supervision, where you go and honestly talk with. Nowadays, people video and all that. I never liked that much, but if you because you want to be yourself with people, who's themselves in front of a video? I mean, I struggled to be, and maybe after the third hour or so in a long filming, I guess, there. But, um, you know, you want supervision from somebody who can help you grow and develop in the way you relate in a helping way. I think that's the single most important thing. So I've given you a bunch of different kinds of answers there.
0: Right. So I'm looking at the time, and I uh, we've already gone over the hour that I uh, requested. Um, I would like to to make sure folks know as much about the conference as I've gone three years in a row. This will be my first fourth year at the wellness forum health conference. Um, what, from your perspective, knowing, you know, knowing what you're talking about and Peter Getcha of Cochrane collaboration and, and, and others and yourself, uh, what, what can you say empathetically to listeners to, uh, you know, get the right people to show up?
1: Well, This is a two-pronged but interrelated conference. Its origins are in nutrition. I can tell you from personal experience at the age of 81 that this is the first Mm -hmm. time Pam Popper's work is the first time I met my equivalent in nutrition, somebody who does a lot of science, somebody who does what's right, somebody who's been heavily attacked because of it and somebody who had the strength and God's help maybe, to stand up to the nutritional medical establishment to speak out on what good nutrition is, not industrial nutrition that was being passed on by the agri-schools and the, um, and the agricultural industries. So you'll get, for the first time, I believe, in your life, an introduction to really sound nutrition based on how we evolved on human being, as human beings over a long time as mammals for millions of years and based on modern science so <clears throat> and that if you follow that program, um, you any illnesses you have will probably improve because it tends to be an anti-inflammatory um, uh, approach to eating, and it uh, will help you lose weight. You'll lose weight automatically if you just eat these foods. You won't even have to worry about it because you won't be eating a lot of fat and you won't be eating much high protein. And, um, so you'll learn to do that. I and, will... and I
0: understand you, you're you saying this from personal experience. As, as
1: Oh, just profound personal experience. I went on a diet in part because I knew that it might be the only way to get my wife to go on it because she'd been so hurt by so-called nutritionists over the years for what is a decades-long profound struggle with gastrointestinal disorders and shifting joint pains that go with gut disorders as well as other associated problems having to do with her immune system. Just, I mean, I almost lost her. At one point, from an immune attack on her heart, mm. so and who had has now had really limited her activities up until May of this year, not very long ago, my friends. And um, so I came home with this diet April first after working with Pam on our course, and um, within um, two or three months, I lost twenty-five pounds. And literally, no longer needed my blood pressure pills. In fact, I thought maybe this diet is making me weak because I'm faint. And I thought faint. Wait a minute, blood pressure. And I took my blood pressure, and it was too low <laughs> on the one small blood pressure pill I was taking. So I just I talked to my internist about it and just threw away the blood pressure pill. And I have the blood pressure of that I did in my 30s. Um, it's not even borderline for and, and my age is supposed to you know borderline would be 150 over 100. And I'm not nowhere near it anymore. Um, so, from my experience, I know it works. So then Ginger, because she loves me, was making me the right food and making sure we didn't go out and eat a lot and get the wrong food. And she started eating it. Within two weeks, she knew she was getting better. It—I could cry. It was the most astonishing thing. Within a month, she was free of probably 35 years or more of severe disorders around the immune system, particularly the gastrointestinal tract, but also cardiovascular, thyroid. I mean, she real illnesses, diagnosable illnesses, all related to the immune system. And now the biggest one that we can quickly measure is the gastrointestinal, and she's healthy. She's actually healthy right now. She has no serious illnesses right now. So, I mean, that made a believer out of me. And Ginger's not the person that responds to placebo. She's not the, you know, I have faith and it works. She's a very hyper, hyper critical, you know, intensely evaluated the person on a scientific basis. She sends me scientific articles to read. So, uh, yes, um, come to the conference. That's the one half. The other half, which is more and more I'm making an integration within my mind, is drug-free therapy, and you're gonna hear from me, I'm gonna give two presentations, and um, Peter Gertz, I don't know if he's doing one or two, but I invited Peter, who is now um, in some ways replacing me as the prolific critic and writer from the medical community about psychiatry and medicine that doesn't work. And um, he's much younger than me, which is really great. And um, then um, another friend of mine, Jeannie Stolzer, is coming and she's going to be talking about the importance of affiliation and relationship in human life. So to sum up probably the deepest connection, human beings grew on a diet meant for them through their evolution and they grew on relationships meant for them through evolution and this conference will give you a much better sense of the power of relationship and the power of nutrition rather than the power of drugs. There's a good tie-in for you.
0: Mm. So when human beings get the physical food and the emotional food they need, they grow up healthy.
1: Even a better way to end our conversation. a good emo- emotional food and the good nutritional food, they do the best they can in life. That doesn't mean there aren't physical conditions that might need or benefit from medication or surgery, but they're actually quite small in comparison to those that benefit from nutrition, believe it or not, whereas I thought it was the reverse. Nutrition would be the, the lesser contribution. No, it's the major one to health.
0: Right. And before before we go, I want to make sure that people know where to find you. That you tell us the the books that you've written that you think are most relevant and useful for people right now. And then uh, Elon and I will will say goodbye and let you go.
1: Um, <clears throat> thank you. It's a great and a great interview. Thank you. It was a great great interview. Um, uh, you can find me at very simple bregan at Hotmail dot com. B R E no, no, no. <laughs> give me forget what I just said. I want to give you my website, com B-R-E-G-G-I-N dot com. com you find tons of information on there. A lot of free information. Tons of free information, including a regular update that I do every week or so. And um then you'll find you can get my books there, but you might just as well go to um, find the cheapest copy you can on, um, you know, uh, the big web- website, pocket on the the uh, Amazon on Amazon.com. Uh, my newest book is psychiatric drug withdrawal. It's a handbook, uh, a book to help you, your therapist, your psychiatrist. Not likely your psychiatrist will like it. Some might. The therapist might. Your, your family physician, who's, if he's medicating you, a pediatrician might like it. And it's a book about why stop the drugs. So the first half is about these dangers I was just talking about, everything I was talking about, about the dangers, and much more is documented, scientific papers. Many of those scientific papers available on my website. And, uh, and then it tells you how to go about getting help, getting off-site drugs. Um, so it's a kind of an encompassing book. Um, you mentioned my book, Guilt, Shame and Anxiety. It's, it gives you my best concepts of being a human being and, and how to overcome the, dis- the emotional disabilities that we all struggle with and why we all struggle with them. He explains through to evolution why we all struggle with them and what, what next steps we make beyond evolution to overcome them. And you may even find to your shock that Darwin was in total agreement with me about all this. I've got a section on Darwin at the end just to show you what real science says, not what you're learning in college. And Darwin said from the begin- said in his great book, uh, The Descent of Man, that, uh, that evolution was about love and human-, human success was about our love and our working together and communicating, um, which he called affiliation, and that our success was based on things like the golden rule. He said it. And in this book, he mentions love, I don't remember, dozens of times, and he mentions survival of the fittest three times, Once to dismiss it. So it's not what you get from other places, and the establishment is all full of crap. It really is. So read Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety. And um, another book, the Empathic my book on uh, The Heart of Being Helpful. I'm so glad that it's loved by you guys. Um, And then one other that's really changed a lot of lives is Toxic Psychiatry. It's an older book, but it will show you how in the 1990s, I nailed everything we're seeing happen today in 1991. And it's a book that is uh, the most commonly mentioned by professionals as changing their lives. Mm -hmm. So thank you much for this great interview.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I have have half a page of prompts for things that i didn't get to ask you about so I, I hope to be able to follow up at some point and uh and continue the conversation and i know Elon would also like to uh to uh, say thanks and goodbye
1: howard you're exactly yeah, you, you so and much. Elon are exactly who i want to talk to you have me back anytime
2: oh uh,
0: well thank you so much i look forward to seeing you next month november 10th through 12th in columbus ohio at the wellness forum health conference all the links everything we talked about will be in the show notes And Dr. Peter Bragan, what an honor and a pleasure and just bathed in emotional joy to to spend this time with you.
1: Thank you. And I feel the same way. And I I just think that you and I will, you know, we're going to do stuff together. We're going to talk more at the conference. And um, we're going to find ways to work together. I think so.
0: Thank you. Nothing, Nothing would make me happier. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye, all. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about, including some of Dr. Bregan's books at plantyourself.com 231. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 230 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but you don't get my weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and also get the Oatmeal Project report at plantyourself.com oatmeal. That report helps you handle one-third of all your meals with one simple formula. And I hope the title of the report doesn't give it away. If you like this show and you'd like to support the mission, you can share this episode and others on social media via email with your friends, with anyone you think would be interested. You can write a review on iTunes, and I've gotten two new reviews in October, which I'd like to share with you. Deb Watt from the U.S. writes that the podcast is life changing. I am not usually a review writer. But I really felt I should share how much these podcasts have touched me and motivated me to keep on the whole food plant based way of living. I have struggled for over six years going back and forth between the standard American diet and a plant based diet. These podcasts remind me every time I listen to them of why I want to be 100% plant based. Thank you so much for all your great interviews and your wonderful insight. Wow, Deb Watt, that's so great to hear that the work that I and all of the guests do are having an actual impact on on your life and helping you maintain that priority of yours, of 100% plant-based lifestyle. So thank you so much. Also from Naughty Nod One from the UK, fantastic podcast exclamation point, says Naughty Nod, and goes on to say, if you only have time to listen to one podcast a week, listen to Plant Yourself. Since discovering Howard's podcast, I have learned so much about so many different aspects of the vegan lifestyle. Howard's interview style is gentle and his genuine inquisitiveness and compassion shine through. His guests inform him and the listeners about health, mental and physical, nutrition, relationships, ethical takes on animal and environmental issues, and even very practical topics like gardening and how to use FBI negotiating skills. Be warned, listening has side effects. His guests are so varied and interesting that you will feel the need to find out more about them all. Consequently, my pile of unread books grows higher, podcasts queue up, and unread newsletters accumulate. Ah, the dark side of being a podcast listener. In all honesty, I look forward to each new episode and dread the day that I have listened to all the previous episodes. Thank you so much, Howard. Much appreciated. Nadi Nod, thank you so much. I know exactly what you mean about those big piles of books. I have piles of unread books uh, for future guests. Um, but I've got to say, you know, this stuff has enriched my life so much. I'm so glad that it's enriching yours. And, you know, for anyone out there, if you want to get through piles of books, start a podcast. Schedule the interview and then you will read the book. I promise you, because it's too scary to get on the phone with someone when you are totally unprepared. And the other way to support the show is financially. I mentioned this at the beginning. Here's the pitch. If you will support the show at patreon.com, just go to patreon.com slash plantyourself or go to plantyourself.com and just find the Patreon link in the right sidebar. And like I said, this stuff is not going to make the mainstream. You're not going to see Peter Bregan anymore. He used to be more, but the uh, psychiatric industry has has made sure that his views are not mainstream. He published last week his discovery that the Las Vegas shooter was on Valium, uh, a psych med known to cause the kinds of disturbances that lead people to uh, lose touch with reality and commit acts of violence. Yes, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen to everyone. Lots of people take Valium um, without those kind of effects, and some don't. And you're not going to discover that. In the mainstream media, you're not going to discover that from media who are beholden to industry. And I am not beholden to industry. The money I get from this podcast is essentially of two types it's people who hear about it and eventually decide they want to work with me in some way, either through the big change program or private coaching or consulting, or people who don't need either of those things and simply want to become a patron, a supporter of this kind of media. And uh, the monthly contributions, the ongoing monthly contributions are the best because they allow me a kind of confidence and a knowing of what's going to come in next month. I'm almost at $400 a month, which is a significant chunk. And it's almost halfway to my first stretch goal of 1000 a month, at which point I'll add an extra Ask Me Anything episode every single month. And also, if you become a patron, you get access to all of my Healthy Habit huddles. The archives, about 40 shows, roughly an hour long. I'm thinking of making them a little shorter just for for ease of production and consumption. But they tackle topics of of, uh, how to get healthy habits into your life. Last month, there was a topic of self-compassion that a number of people wrote to me about and said how helpful it was and they, uh, they actually cried a bit and made important changes in their lives. And, you know, I really want to make my work freely available. And it really, a dollar a month will get you every huddle I've ever done and every huddle that I will do in the future. In garden news, I spent the weekend plowing a couple of beds by the side of the house, not in the official garden, but we're going to be throwing some cover crop in there. And next year, we'll see what we plant them with. And in running news, I'm tapering now. i got the 50K coming up on Saturday in Freeze, Virginia. And I'm really hoping to, to get in around 4 hours, 45 minutes. That would be incredible. It would be a lot faster than I went last year. We will see. We will see how the legs feel on that day and uh, how much I want to put into it. I'll, I'll, of course, let you know how that goes. All right. Now comes the fun part, the thanks. Thanks, of course, to Will Hour the Chora player extraordinaire for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, the dance of peace. Will ride is where you can find more of his music. And thanks to all you plant yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennedy, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron's Christine Nielsen, Tina, Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Thanovsky, David Baisak, the mysterious Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolman, Overly Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina Julian, Roland Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkes, of Circuit Kelly, Cameron Wayne Peterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bellum, Jeanette Batham, Gila the Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doron, Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, De Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z. Alicia Lemmis, Rebecca Hughes Val, Linneman Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, <gasps> Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, oops, Skip Deanne Norton, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copold, Shell Shel Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, and Linda Ayat for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. Actually, that's not it for this week. We have a second show coming up on Friday with Pam Popper, and I'll be doubling up, I think, for the next couple of weeks because I've got so many in the can and so many planned. So stay tuned, and as always, be well, my friends.